Uh, all of that, uh, and I'm Jewish. <laughs> Thank you, David. Uh, um, I have to say, this is a, I, I do a fair amount of speaking, but this is, this is a kind of a unique occasion for me. I mean this quite sincerely. Uh, five years ago, I, was, um, I got an email from my speaking agent that began with the line, you're not going to believe this, but Federation in Albany wants you to speak on the 5th of May, 2019, which seemed impossibly far distant at the time. So I want to thank Dan. I don't know whether I want to thank him because it seems he cleverly figured out that my speaking fees might rise, but I would be locked into a 2014 rate. So I want to congratulate you rather than thank you. Um, I'm, uh, I'm mindful of what is happening uh, as we speak in Israel, and I'm going to talk about it. But for this evening's purposes, I, I thought I would tell you um, a somewhat more personal story. Uh, last year for Pesach, I decided that my kids were old enough so that I could bring my, them, three children, uh, and my wife, for uh, a holiday uh, in in Israel. I I've been editor in chief of the Jerusalem. I've been editor in chief of the Jerusalem Post uh, in a, in a past life. I have been back to Israel since since my time at the Post. Uh, I think 36 times, always with the purposes of reporting. Um, but this was one occasion when I thought, you know, my kids are old enough, they're not going to look at Israel as just another beach destination. Uh, it's, th this is the age where, where they're going to get it. It was also around the age when I, when I first went to Israel. So I had the chance to, you know, put the three kids in the back of the car and serve as a tour guide as we went literally from the Golan Heights all the way down to Eilat, one one thing or other in between, and naturally, it's one of those classic family setups where dad is driving, mom's in the in, in the passenger seat, and then there are three squabbling teenagers. Well, let's see, not quite teenagers. At the time, there were fourteen, twelve, and and eight. So so they were screaming in the back, and I had one of these moments in which I, I fantasized that I might have the opportunity to take three other people on a tour of Israel. And I was wondering, well, who would I take? Where would I go? And what would I say? So what I decided is that in place of my uh, um, somewhat truculent teenager, um, I would have, uh, I would invite Steve Bannon. <laughs> he would be seated on the right. And in place of uh, the, the young one, uh, the, the, the littlest one, the eight-year-old, I'd have uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I'd have her on the left. And then stuck in the middle, I would have Mohammed bin Salman, the de facto ruler of Saudi Arabia. Now, what kind of tour would I give these three? So I was, I, I've been playing this fantasy out in my mind, and, and I wanted to share the, 
my idea of a tour of Israel for them. So it would begin when I would pick them up uh, at, the, at the airport. And I think one of the first things I would like to do uh, is point out to, to all of them, because this is important, that they should note that the signage, um, of course, it's in Hebrew. It's the language of the state of Israel. Of course, it's in Arabic. Of course, it's in English. But if they look closely, they would see so many other languages represented there. Probably most commonly, they would see Cyrillic lettering. They'd see Russian. What they would understand right away is that contrary to the idea that is prevalent on the right, as well as on the left, that Israel is some mono-ethnic state, Israel is actually a polyglot, multicultural country. And it is a country of immigrants. People today talk about the United States having too many immigrants. And one of the statistics that's cited in this, in this sense is that America's, the, the, the percentage of Americans who are not native-born is now close to an all-time high, approaching what it was at the turn of the uh, last century, um, of about 13%. Do you want to know what it is in Israel? It's 25%. One out of every four Israelis was not born there. It's an, it is truly an immigration society. The only country in the developed world that has a slightly higher immigration rate is Australia. Australia is about 26%. Interesting fact about Australia and Israel. Those two countries have had the highest sustained rate of economic growth of any country in the OECD, which is evidence that when you open your doors to immigrants who have energy and ambition and sometimes just need, they tend to succeed. And Israel is living proof that you can have a thriving economy, a thriving democracy, and still respect the fact that different cultures can commingle successfully and productively together. And that's a lesson I think all three of my guests should know straight away. Now we get into our car, it'd have to be a fairly large one given the size of Mohammed bin Salman, <laughs> or Steve Bannon now that I think about it. And the first place I would want to take them is a town that uh, is usually not on anyone's tourist list. It's a, it's a small city in Israel called Ramla. Have, do any of you know, have any of you been to Ramla? Right, a few people know, know do you know what Ramla's chief attraction is? Yeah, very few people do. The, the main thing to know about Ramla is it, it is the city which has one of Israel's largest and most notorious prisons. Now, not only is it uh, uh, known for this, but it's known in particular for who some of those prisoners have been. For example, the pre a previous president of the state of Israel was, for a long time, in the Ramla prison. A previous prime minister of the state of Israel was also a guest in the Ramla central prison. Party leaders, all kinds of illustrious Israelis, have spent time in Ramla prison. Now, Mohammed bin Salman, who likes to imprison people at the Ritz-Carlton in uh, Riyadh, <laughs> might not be uh, impressed. 
And Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez might say, oh, you see, look, it's just further evidence that the Israeli government is populated by crooks. I would argue that if you want to test the health and the success of a society, look at who it has in its prisons. Because in Iran today, at Avin prison in Tehran, the people you will find are the future leaders of Iran. In Ramla, at least, they're the former leaders of Israel. In Ramla, at least, you see the proof, as you did with the pending indictments of the current prime minister, that Israel is still a country that believes in the rule of law. And that, more than the number of Nobel Prizes it has to its credit, more than the pill cams it's invented, more than the agriculture that it's developed, that is actually the real test of the health of a society. And that's a lesson that ought, to, that ought to be learned by my three guests. Look at this little country that puts its former leaders into jail when they are convicted of crimes. That is a sign of why I so admire Israel. Now, we continue driving since we're driving in a southwesterly direction. I would take them to the Kerem Shalom checkpoint that um, is one of the principal checkpoints between Israel and the Gaza Strip. Karen Shalom is the place where Israel gives to the people of Gaza all of the essential goods on which Gazans depend. The medicine, the food, the concrete, the energy. All of that comes to Gaza from the country that is allegedly persecuting it. A year ago, during the beginnings of the protests uh, along the, the Gaza border, the Palestinian protests along the Gaza border, Palestinians burned down the Karen Shalom checkpoint, not once, not twice, three times. And why are they doing that? Well, the definition or the, the classic illustration of chutzpah is the boy who kills his parents and then pleads for the mercy of the court on account of being an orphan. That is the tactic that Hamas has perfected now for years and is doing so again as we speak. Attack Israel and benefit by the effects of a kinetic strike that allow your people to suffer the consequences of retaliation and benefit from the effects of a propaganda strike. Because when I looked at a newspaper that was not the New York Times today, by the way, what was the headline that I saw? It wasn't Hamas or the Palestinians attack Israel. It was Israel and Palestinians trade blows. As if there was some kind of equivalence, as if this was a sort of a boxing match and both guys got in the ring at the same time. That's not what happened. What Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and other Palestinian sympathizers would like to think is that Israel does nothing but try to immiserate Palestinians. The author, in fact, and what I would say to her on our little tour, the author of Palestinian impoverishment, Palestinian victimization, is the Palestinian leadership itself, which is why Palestinians were in open revolt against Hamas just about a month ago with hardly anyone in the world noticing. 
Every one of those tunnels that Hamas is building under the border into Israel costs about $3 million apiece. They have found dozens of those tunnels. Any one of those tunnels, and, and the Wall Street Journal actually did a study on this, could build dozens of homes, medical clinics, mosques, you name it. Palestinians are making a choice about where they want to put their money. And it's a choice about killing Jews, not building their own, pro their own future and their own prosperity. And that's something that Ocasio-Cortez and the rest of the progressive left that constantly demonizes Israel ought to know. And that's a lesson I'd like them to, to learn. From Karen Shalom, I would drive a little bit north to an airbase, pretty much right between Tel Aviv and, uh, uh, I guess, Ashkelon. It's called the Palmahim Air Base. Palmahim is very interesting. I, I actually, I just did a tour of it a, a couple months ago. Uh, it's where Israel has all of its drones. It's also where Israel houses uh, something called the Arrow 3 or excuse me, the Arrow 2, or no, the Arrow 3 anti-ballistic missile. Every one of you is familiar with Iron Dome, which is why so far there have been, and I say this advisedly, only four Palestinian, uh, four Israeli deaths so far from a barrage of more than 600 rockets and missiles. People know something about David's Sling, which is supposed to intercept medium-range uh, rockets fired from, by Hezbollah. But then you have the Arrow missiles, which are ABM missiles, anti-ballistic missiles, that are meant to stop an Iranian missile from hitting uh, an Israeli city. Why has Israel deployed the Arrow 3 system? For a very simple reason. Because Iran, even after signing the so-called Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the Iran nuclear deal, continued, in fact accelerated, its testing and its fielding of ballistic missiles, ballistic missiles that have only one use, one real use, which is to be the launcher, be the vehicle for deploying a nuclear weapon. That's why Israel invests billions of dollars in these missiles. Because whatever else you thought about the JCPOA, eventually it was going to leave Iran with the benefits of the economic benefits of having sanctions lifted, and the promise, and this is assuming Iran honored the deal, the promise that in 15 years they would have full access to a complete nuclear cycle. That is to say, there would be no legal limitation on, all of, on, on, on their right to enrich as much uranium or reprocess as much plutonium as they like, ostensibly for civilian purposes. Which is why, despite the fact that I'm often called a never-Trumper, I think the president was absolutely right and correct to get the United States out of the JCPOA. We are now finally applying maximum pressure on an evil regime, not for the purpose of going to war with them, but for the purpose of negotiating, I hope, the purpose of negotiating a deal that says that a country that can put a stone in one hand and stone a woman to death should never be allowed to get within miles of having a nuclear core so that it can effectively do the same thing to its neighbors, including Israel. And that's what Palmahim is all about, to stop that from happening. So that would be a lesson. I don't need Mohammed bin Salman or even Steve Bannon to know this, but I would certainly like the, like the Alexandra Ocasio-Cortezes of the world to know it. Another lesson for our new congresswoman from Queens. We would drive a little further north and we'd go to Tel Aviv. 
And if it would be June, it would be time for what I'm told is by far the greatest, most fantastic, most amazing pride parade uh, in the world. Certainly the only fantastic, amazing <laughs> pride parade in the Middle East. Now why is that significant? It's significant because Israel's principal critics in the United States today are not coming from the old line right. The critics are now coming from the so-called progressive left. And it's an, astonishing, it's an astonishing thing, because if you believe in gay rights, if you believe in women's rights, if you believe in the right to dissent, if you believe in minority representation in government, if you believe in environmental justice, if you are opposed to the death penalty, if you think that journalists should be able to speak truth to power and not fear for their lives as a consequence, that is to say, if you believe any number of progressives in America today are supposed to believe, then the only state that you can possibly support, the only state that shares your values and has advanced them, and in many cases pioneered those values for its entire history, is the Jewish state. Because however much you might want to champion the rights of the Palestinians, gay Palestinians have no rights. They fear for their lives. Women in Palestine don't have the same rights as men. There's no actual journalism in Palestine. There's no representative government in Palestine. And that's a point that people ought to make. People want freedom for the Palestinians. So do I. But what exactly, what are we talking about when we use the word freedom? Because what you're talking about right now is simply licensing two tyrannies, the kleptocracy in Ramallah under Mahmoud Abbas, or the theocracy in Gaza under Hania and the, and the Hamas leadership to tyrannize their own people. So the lesson in Tel Aviv for Ocasio-Cortez is this country, Israel, that you spend so much of your energies trying to delegitimize and cut off from the United States is the only one where you or anyone in your family would want to live. And that's a lesson that ought to be learned. And I would say the same to Mohammed bin Salman. You see this, or, or even Steve Bannon, you see this country that you, so, you think is so strong, so powerful, has such an extraordinary military capability. It has it because it rests on foundations of personal liberty and freedom that don't exist anywhere else. That is the strength of the country. So we continue in our, we get back in our car after gay pride, and I'm sure Bin Salman would have a wonderful time. <laughs> And we drive up, uh, we go to Route 6, which uh, was the highway, that, it's the highway that kind of drives north from up the spine of Israel, uh, right in the middle of the country. And as you're driving north on Route 6, at some point when you look to your right, you will see the Palestinian city of uh, Kalkilia. And when I say Palestinian, I mean it's under the control of the Palestinian Authority. It is the Palestinian city that is, on the, that is the westernmost city in the West Bank. So it's, it's, the, it's the Palestinian city closest to the Mediterranean. This is why I have Steve Bannon on the right, uh, because he'll be closer to it. Now, <laughs> Calculia is entirely surrounded by a wall. 
I remember when that wall went up, I was editor of the Jerusalem Post. It was the height of the Second Intifada. Israel was experiencing suicide bombings uh, at a rate of once, twice, sometimes three times a week. About a thousand Israelis were killed during the time that I was uh, the editor, and many, many more were injured. Remember, proportionally, every Israeli is about the same as 60 Americans. That's the proportional difference between Israel's population. That is to say, when, when someone in Israel dies, the number of people it affects, the circle of grieving it, it creates, is that much wider. So Israel, during the Second Intifada, had to put these walls up. It was a matter of urgent necessity. And I'm sure, as we drive past this, Bannon would be looking at it, snapping photos, saying, look at this big, beautiful wall. I've never seen anything so artistic and fantastic. Well, that wall is meant to keep killers out, not, not uh, you know, people who want to mow your lawn or whatever. But it's there for a reason. I understand the reason. It shouldn't be there forever. Israelis shouldn't want, Israelis don't want, and Palestinians don't want to live behind walls forever. We should want, at some point, a Palestinian state. We should want two states. Jews don't want to rule Palestinians. Palestinians don't want to be ruled by Jews. That's not a difficult principle to grasp. The question isn't whether we should have a peace plan from Jared Kushner tomorrow explaining you know, how you're going to arrange that. The question is, are Palestinians going to be capable and demonstrate the capacity to create the institutions of governance that can give some reasonable assurance to any of their neighbors, not just Israelis, but Jordanians and Egyptians too, that they're capable of independent statehood? Because there are all kinds of people, stateless people in the world today, who have been asking for states of their own and being summarily denied by the international community. The Kurds want a state. They're not going to get one. The Tamils in Sri Lanka want one. They're not going to get it. Tibetans, forget it. The Quebecois. Every now and then, I was just in California the other day. They want a state of their own if Trump's reelected. <laughs> Believe me. But they're not going to get it. So what exactly entitles Palestinians to a state? People should ask that question. It would be better to have a peace plan from Kushner or Greenblatt or whoever that says, before we can even talk about a Palestinian state, let's make sure that, number one, Palestinian leaders are actually democratically elected, number two, that they respect the rights of their own people, number three, that they are not uh, openly plotting or at least plotting in some way the destruction of their neighbors, Number four, that they are going to become a civilized member of the community of nations. Because I want a Palestinian state if it looks like Costa Rica. I don't want a Palestinian state if it looks like South Sudan, or if it looks like Yemen, or for that matter, if it looks like Gaza. And it shouldn't be a lot to ask the Palestinians, make your state Costa Rica. In Gaza, you have a, you have a beautiful beach resort. The West Bank is beautiful you can actually do something amazing. Costa Rica is small, it's demilitarized, it's democratic, it respects the rights of its people. And when you last turned to your spouse and said, let's take a holiday in Central America, I'm sure she or he said, 
Yeah, that sounds great. Let's go to Honduras. That never happens. You say Costa Rica. So is it going to be Honduras or is it going to be Costa Rica? Because if the answer is Honduras, I think we'll have to accept the unpleasantness of the current reality for another decade or two decades or three decades until Palestinians finally say to themselves, we have to live with some different aspiration than simply the destruction of our neighbors. That's the test for Palestinian statehood. And that's the point I would make to my, to my guests. We continue driving north, and I'd like to take them to a town called Tzfat. It's a beautiful city in, in, uh, in the Galilee. And for a number of years, uh, even today, although it's less talked about, there's a hospital in Tzfat in which um, desperately wounded Syrians are treated, uh, are given life-saving treatment for uh, for injuries they've received over in Syria and can get no medical, and for which they can get no medical attention. So they're secretly brought through the border, over the Golan Heights, and they're taken to one of four hospitals in the Galilee. One of them is, is in Scott, and I happen to know it. Now, what's amazing to me about the medical treatment that Israel's been given the, giving these, these wounded Syrians is that, in theory, this is a fantastic Hasbara opportunity for Israel, right? Look, the enemy state, and yet we're taking their wounded and, and quietly, you know, treating them so that, so that they'll live. But Israel says almost nothing about this. Why? Because it knows that if it tries to tout the fact too loudly, it will only endanger the lives of the people who are being treated. It does this at a considerable expense to itself. No obvious public relations benefit, but why does it do it? And why is it so significant? Because at some level, Israelis know that they are the kind of country that does this. They are the kind of country that tends to the wounds of the people who are supposed to be their enemy. And because they're that kind of country, they're a country that its citizens are proud of. And because they're proud of it, it's the kind of country that they fight for. Why is Israel one of the happiest countries in the world? It's not because it's got great technology and all the rest of it, okay? It's not because it's had a thriving economy all these years. It's because it is a country in which from the moment of your birth as an Israeli, you have a sense of purpose, of identity, and of pride. And that's remarkable, and few other countries have that. And what happens in places like Tzfat, and so many other places in Israel that take care of the vulnerable and the weak is the real reason, not the Merkava tanks and the F-35 jets, F-35 jets, the real reason Israel is so powerful. That's the reason. Two more stops on my tour and then I'll, I'll quit. Go up to the Golden Heights. When I was in Israel, this is now going back, uh, so uh, 13 months ago, or 12 months ago, uh, I took my kids to a, uh, a promontory, many of you I'm sure have visited, on the road which allows you to look down on uh, uh, the Syrian, the abandoned Syrian city of Kunetra. And it happens that we were there exactly on the same day that Bashar Assad was gassing people once again in a neighborhood of Damascus. We didn't know, know this at the time that we were looking out uh, at Syria, but I said to my kids, I said, you have to know that 
the killing you re you're reading about in the Times, the horror that is Syria, it's right over there. It's not an abstraction. It's just 200 yards away. That's the country where it's happening. I wanted my kids to see that. Now, right now, Bashar Assad is consolidating power in Syria. I think this is a tragedy, not only for the Syrian people, but it is a disaster for um, America's interests and to some extent for Syrian interests in the, uh, or, for, or for Israel's interests in the Middle East. It means that Iran, despite the end of the JCPOA, despite its setbacks, Iran is in fact creating that crescent, that Shiite crescent that goes from Bandar Abbas on the shores of the Persian Gulf through Damascus to the Bekaa Valley, touching Gaza, and then down to the Houthis in Yemen. That's happening. And withdrawing U.S. forces, or at least m many U.S. forces from Syria, only allows it to happen that much more quickly. So that the menace that Israel faces in Syria from Hezbollah, despite the thousands of strikes that Israel has conducted, that menace is growing. And it's growing in part because there's now a new element in the Middle East, or a new old element, which is the reintroduction of Russia as a principal player in the geopolitics of the Middle East. So now Israel doesn't simply face Hezbollah or uh, Assad or Tehran, but it faces all three of them back to some extent by Russian military power, Russian military technology. The missile, the, the guided missile that just hit a bus in Gaza, a Cornet missile, was a missile that was either built in Russia or built in Iran under Russian license and made its way to Hezbollah and then eventually to Hamas. That's, how, that's, what, that's what's happening now. And that is the challenge that Israel is going to face. It should not be a challenge that Israel faces alone. I criticize the former administration for thinking that you could just leave the Middle East and imagine that the Middle East would leave you alone. Let's be careful not to make that same mistake now. The idea that you can walk away is foolish. Leon Trotsky, who was a friend of my grandmother's, said, you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. Let's not make that mistake again. Let's not imagine that we can just tell the rest of the world to go mind its own business while we take care of ours. The reality of the world today is either the United States is going to lead or it's going to be a world of every country for itself that's going to be ultimately more dangerous for us and the countries that we care about. So a concept of America first is a recipe for America alone. People should beware of that concept. Final stop on my, on my tour. We would drive south from the Golan and we'd end up in Jerusalem. And you know, if we came, depending on what route we, we took, say we, we, we came down, back down Route 6, we went up uh, to Jerusalem the traditional way, go under that beautiful Kalatrava Bridge, which I'm sure was built corruptly and over budget <laughs> by Ehud Olmert. Um, I'd like to take them to one last stop. If you haven't done this, I did it with my kids and I'd like to do it with my guests, you have to tour the City of David archaeological dig which is right outside the old city walls. It is the most important archaeological excavation occurring in the world today. 
And when I was there, I, I was given a VIP tour, which takes you on an underground passageway leading from far outside the city walls, several hundred meters, all the way up to the, uh, the base of the Western Wall, which is about 40 or 50 feet under the plaza itself. You're about 40 or 50 feet underground. And what you're looking at there are these huge building blocks that are rough-hewn because that's where the masons were just practicing their craft uh, uh, and didn't have to carve these stones that, that precisely. I'm going to leave my guests aside and just tell you what actually happened to me. So there I am with my kids, and you know I, I, I joke about this, but in terms of my observance, I'm sort of as minimally Jewish as you get without actually being Unitarian. Um, uh, fortunately, my wife's a convert, so I, we have to observe everything. Um, uh, but there I was, and I was looking at these huge, I don't know, three-ton stone, a three-ton foundation blocks, and I started crying, and my, my kids were sort of taken aback. Dad's crying. Why is he crying? And, and I, I, I didn't quite understand the emotion at the time, but I thought about it later on. And what I, I think the reason I was crying was this. You know, if you listen to critics uh, on the BBC or wherever about Israel's problems, they will tell you at some, at some point they get down to the nub of their argument which is that Israel is an artificial state. That it's a bunch of castaways from Poland and Hungary and you know, Morocco or wherever, kind of washed up on this Mediterranean shore, but they are, so to speak, the, the, the alien corn. They don't belong there. They're not really native there. The real people are the Palestinians. And the Palestinians believe this too, and they think that over time, the Jews will go just as the Crusaders went. It's just a matter of, of numbers and pressure. And yet you're down there and you're thinking, right now, Yemen, Syria, Iraq, Libya, maybe Jordan, all of these states are in uh, advanced conditions of decay. Some of them are just blowing away. All of them are built on foundations of sand. And yet the only state in the region that has roots so deep and so solid and so ancient that you can see them 60 feet underground, under the Western Wall. And the only state whose branches continue to leaf and bloom and flower in the luxuriant ways that you find in Tel Aviv and Sfat and Palmahim and everywhere else we've gone on our little tour, the only state that has those roots and has those branches and those flowers is the Jewish state, is Israel. So I think it's for us here, for all of you, for Federation, to keep watering them and to keep some sense of faith that when all is said and done, it will be that that survives and that flourishes when everything else has blown away. Thank you.